This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Over 80% of the grades given to students at Yale University are either an A or an A minus. The average grade point average at Yale uh, is 3.7 on a four point scale. That's not too far from a straight A average. And it's not just Yale, at Harvard, 79% of all grades given to undergraduates in the 2021 school year were A's or A minuses, up from 60%, the New York Times tells us, uh, you know, 10 years earlier. So Doug Lamov is telling us that this is nothing new. It's And it's not just elite colleges where the problem is. Uh, Doug Lamov is the author of the best-selling book, Teach Like a Champion, and he's the author of a lead essay in the latest issue of Education Next entitled, Your Neighborhood School is a National Security Risk. I'm very pleased to have Doug with me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Doug, for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Well, Doug, in your uh, article uh, in Education Next, you say uh, grade inflation has been on the rise. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe kids are just doing better than ever. So what's your evidence that this is great inflation? Yeah, that's a great question, because uh, I think many of us feel it, but it is important to have a little bit of data on this. So one of the interesting things about the ACT test is that it asks students to report their grades. Uh, and you can chart that over time. And actually, in the article, you can see the charts of this. But uh, the average uh, GPA in English has gone from, in let's say 2010, it was a 3.3, uh, and it's risen steadily starting in about 2016 to now where it's a 3.4 roughly. And the interesting thing is that during that time, the ACT scores for English have declined. It's the same story in math. The average GPA in 2010 was 3.19. It's now 3.36, a fairly dramatic rise. During that time, ACT scores have again dropped. And you can see this uh, in all four of the disciplines in which students report their grades to the ACTs. Uh, pretty consistent trend, steep rise in student grades between 2016 and 2022, uh, and flat or declining ACT scores at the same time. Well, who's driving this? Is it the colleges? Are the colleges showing that uh, you actually need to inflate grades in this modern era? And then the, the high schools are just following uh, what uh, they're being told by their, uh, you know, pace setters. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, the short answer is, I don't know. And I'm not sure that anybody knows. There probably isn't one source entirely, but I would point out a couple of different incentives. I think the, and maybe the headline here is there's this fascinating narrative in American schools that somehow teacher grades are this pure and authentic signal on student achievement. I think a little bit of reflection on that suggests that that's, uh, you really have to will yourself to believe that that's true. So first of all, um, schools want to serve their students well and students uh, and schools, whether they're uh, public or private schools, earn their credibility in many ways with their ability to get students into colleges, right? If I'm a private school, certainly myself or parents as well, you know, we will get you into elite schools, but you know, this is a, the game for suburban schools as well. How do I get my students into better colleges? Well, I give them better grades, right? That's one, that's one incentive. Then there are also a series of just very personal incentives, right? Uh, when I was a teacher, 
one of the most difficult conversations is the conversation with the student who doesn't like their grade or the conversation with the parent who doesn't like their student's grade. One of the easiest ways to save yourself that discomfort and that pain is to give everyone a good grade. And now there are every, you know, everybody is happy uh, or most people are happy because everyone thinks they're doing well. Doug, yeah. let me interrupt here. So on, that's always mm -hmm. been the case. Uh, you know, uh, it's yeah. always been the case that you get less complaints if you hand out A's than B's. So why is it that teachers are now wanting to make parents and students happier more? Well, you know, when I was uh, in school, I, I, I just remember that teachers were quite willing to uh, yeah. give out tough grades and they didn't give a hoot that you didn't like it. That's what you deserved. Yeah, I think maybe you're just, you know, is it possible that there's a mindset change in the profession that the profession has become less about perceiving itself as arbiters of rigor and of quality and, uh, and that, that the profession narrates its work slightly differently, that teachers don't perceive themselves as, as that their job is to discern the difference between excellence and mediocrity. Uh, you know, this is a little bit speculative, but it's conceivable that there would be perceptive changes on mass among teachers about the role of grading, the importance. Certainly there's a lot of narrative about changing narratives about the role of stress that somehow if I'm giving, that, that if I'm giving, if I'm a hard grader, I am inducing stress on students. I think that, you know, the science would say, would say that um, we're maybe a little bit too hypersensitive to that, but is that, is that a growing narrative in schools? You know, it, it, it probably is. I sort of feel like at at Harvard, anyhow, maybe this is a special mm -hmm. case, but I don't think it is. I, at Harvard, I think that we have offices that are telling us students are likely to be stressed. And they mm -hmm. tell students, you're likely to be stressed. We, we're going to give you uh, the, the day off, or we're going to have a special yeah. occasion, or we have a special place if you feel stressed. And we have special services if you're stressed. So people are beginning to think they should be stressed. I think that's possible. I think that's quite possible that, you know, uh, the notion that, that if you tell me that all of my classmates are stressed, that I am probably stressed, that I probably should be stressed, that a, that a test will stress me out, that that stress might damage me. Do I start to look for evidence that I might be stressed? Do I start to think that I'm going to be hurt by the, uh, by the stress of preparing for, um, for a test? Yes, I think that's quite possible. There's, uh, you know, one of the most interesting books that I've read in the last year is Kelly McGonigal's book, The Upside of Stress. And I just, I would just highly recommend this book to, to educators and parents. But her, the story of the book is kind of fascinating because she, she's a stress researcher at Stanford. And initially she gave presentations to people on how to mitigate stress in their lives on the belief that stress was harmful. And she says in the book, like, in order to demonstrate that, I went more deeply into the studies. And what I found was that actually there were a lot of flaws in the studies and the studies didn't say what I was telling people the studies said. That oftentimes when we look at a study that says stress is harmful, the study involves doing something like throwing rats into a bucket of water until they nearly drown and then fishing them out and then throwing them back in until they nearly drown and then fishing them out and throwing them back in again. And under those sorts of circumstances, is stress toxic? Absolutely. But that is not really a great proxy for what happens when you're studying for an exam, right? That actually what she found when she looked at the data was that 
the people who thrive most in life, who achieve the most and who are happiness, happiest are not people who live without stress. They're people who have an effective mindset to dealing with stress. And part of what gives you an effective mindset to, to dealing with stress is in fact dealing with, with stress. She says, you know, it's impossible to have a meaningful life that stress is an outgrowth growth of doing meaningful things. It's impossible to have a meaningful life without having some stress. And so a much more effective strategy is not to try to avoid stress. Stress causes us to achieve more. It, for, it causes us to be more likely to form collective and cohesive groups. Interestingly, it helps us feel more belonging. And living with moderate stress helps us to learn how to deal with stress in our lives. So ironically, this sort of spike in um, mental health issues also could be because students are not exposed to the sort of benign manageable stress of, I have a test on Monday and I have to study hard over the weekend because the pressure's on. I, I hate to talk about my granddaughter to you, Doug, but my granddaughter, as her mother puts it, she she's a test taker. So when, when there's going to be a test coming up, she studies for it, she peers for it, but she enters into it with great confidence. It isn't that she isn't stressed, but stress mobilizes her self-confidence to yes. reach a, a higher level of performance than she might achieve if it weren't for the demands being placed upon her at that particular moment. Isn't, isn't that really what we want to encourage in, in students? Yes, and I think that that is a key part of McGonagall's argument, that there's this sort of, uh, you could, I present in the article the Yerkes-Dotson curve, which is the relationship between stress and performance. And the ideal spot for learning and maximum performance is not no stress, it's moderate stress. It's uh, that, yes, you could overstress people, but you can also understress people and cause them not to maximize their achievement and and productivity and i think that's what you're describing in your granddaughter and i would just say that the, the you know the student who i sort of profiled in this article is a student named ella describes you know she describes some of her frustrations at being a motivated hardworking student and feeling like that is not what schools value but she says my school over and over again during you know during midterms and final exams would say you know uh the counseling center is open for you if the if you know if you're stressed from taking exams and her take was it's a test do you do you think that i'm so fragile that i need to go to a counselor because of you know because of a test like um there, there are a lot of valid reasons why you might have a stressful situation in your life that will require a counselor, but taking a test is not really one of them. Okay, so Doug, you know, I appreciate that. And Ella is a great story that you tell in your article, and I, I urge uh, listeners to, to look it up, but it's in Education Next, the current issue. And so the, the article really talks about Ella, but now is Ella typical? I mean, aren't there plenty of students for whom it does mean make some sense to have some support services because they do get overwhelmed by by the situation. Sure, I think I think maybe to me like the dangerous thing is sort of presuming and telling students that we presume that they are so fragile that taking a test would require them to need. I mean, this isn't really the major point of the article, but the note. I mean, I do think that you um, can socialize students to not be aware of their own self-coping mechanisms, of their ability to deal with and overcome uh, 
moderate and typical stress in their lives. And in fact, that's part of what school does and should do for you, which is exam period as a college student should be challenging because, you know, I tell my kids this all the time, like this is, there are going to be times in the workplace where you're going to have to stay up late and you're going to have to work harder than you thought you could work and where your time is going to be under pressure. And this is great practice for that. So learn to learn to deal with it now and do your best because all your life, if you're lucky, life will put you under pressure and you have to be prepared to deal with it. Well, Doug, this could be one of the reasons why we're seeing this great inflation, but but you talk about another possibility, which mm-hmm. is that life is easier for teachers. And maybe you'd like to talk about that a little bit. So we now have a lot of student evaluations of teachers, at least at the college level. I don't know how much of that mm-hmm. has penetrated into elementary and as probably not elementary, but into secondary schools as well. Where So teachers are a little nervous about being too harsh on students for fear that uh, the students will be harsh on them. So has uh, this become a circular process where everybody tells one another, oh, we're all great and we're all doing well and uh, we're all buddies. What well, I do think that there is, there is a recipe for collusion out there. You know, there, there are different forms that it could take, but everyone's happier. Well, almost everyone is happier if everyone feels like they're successful. Right. And if I can, if I can tell all my parents and all my students that they're doing great and they're all making, they're all doing nice, great. They're all getting good grades. Um, my life is a lot easier. Everyone is a little bit happier. Things go smoothly. If I have the reputation as being a kind of teacher that people love, if I'm a, if I'm a college professor, uh, could I be forgiven for thinking that more students will sign up for my classes? I mean, one of the I think, challenges I think of, you know, let's say I'm a professor or a teacher who is more old school that matches with your description of how it was 20 or 30 years ago when teachers felt like, you know, I can give a bad grade and it doesn't bother me. In fact, I think it's a gift to a student to tell them their work doesn't measure up because that's what's going to help them to realize what it, what it is to do work of quality. Let's say I wanted to be that professor. You know, I'm, I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm out of step with the entire institution. Who's going to take my class if the average grade in my class is a B is a B or a B minus, and they can take some other class and get an A or an A minus, uh, almost guaranteed. Uh, I, actually, it's, it's interesting. After I wrote this article, I had a podcast of my own where I interviewed my, I have two kids in college, and my daughter described classes where there's an explicit deal, which is, it's the contract for an A, which is, if you do the following things, you will get, you will get an A or an A minus in this class. And only if you like egregiously, like don't do the assignments, can you get worse than that? That is an easy way to get students to want to take your class as opposed to being the hard guy, the outlier. Uh, there's a great vignette in Ross is, I don't know if it's Doubt Hat or Doubt Hat. I don't know how you pronounce his name. The, um, he describes his experiences at Harvard, interestingly. And he says, I had a professor who Oh, said it's to Harvey us, Mansfield. You're talking about Harvey Mansfield. Maybe, yes, that's right. So Harvey he, Mansfield, who was a colleague and a very good friend of mine, is a very good friend of mine. He's just retired. But while he was teaching at, at Harvard, he he introduced uh, what he gave as their Harvard grade and then their real grade. And the real grade could be a C or a C minus, and the Harvard grade could be a B plus. And and he would say, I have to give out the Harvard grade because I got to be competitive 
with mm -hmm. the other courses at Harvard, and these students are going on to graduate school or law school or medical school. And I don't want to penalize them. I got to be in line with my colleagues. But at the same time, I got to tell the students the real truth of the matter. Right. He's describing the untenable pressure of, I want to tell you the truth about your work. Your work is a C, but I won't be able to survive in my job and no one will take, no one will take my course and learn the things that I, I think are important if I give you what I think your, worth is, your work is really worth. So I'm going to give you an external grade, which is going to be an A, uh, but then I'm going to tell you what I really think, and that's going to be a much lower grade. And I think that that is... By the way, he was called in by the administrators and said, we don't like that practice. So, so eventually, because I'm, you know, because it, it was an insult to the institution, of course. Right. And so, administrators figured this out. You know, he's deliberately tweaking our, you know, pulling our noses. So, yeah, please, please allow the hypocrisy to remain hidden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now there must be more to it than that. Uh, what other are the factors do you think are contributing to, to great inflation besides this sort of uh, potential uh, collusion and the stress concerns? Are there more things that are coming onto the table? For example, people are saying that we're now so much concerned about equity. We want everybody to be equal that in order to get equity, we just have to we have to go down. It's easier to be equitable by going down in our expectations and up in our expectations. I think that's true. And by the way, I like, there is no greater insult to me than to say that to be act, to be equitable to any group, I have to reduce my standards. I, I just I just simply don't believe that there is any group for whom I have to expect less to be fairer to them. But I think that there there is no college admissions, you know, returns to education are spiraling in our society. You know, Robert Putnam has, a, uh, has written about this extensively. The economic benefits to further education are increasing. Prosperous families are the first to recognize that and the first to want to protect that prerogative. It is impossible to think that the process of allocating scarce spaces in elite institutions that shape the rest of your life is not going to be highly competitive. There is no way to not have a selection engine for that. The question is, will the selection engine be explicit? Will it be managed? Will we use data to make sure that it's calibrated in some fair way? Or will we let it devolve into some system like some incohate system of Vague incentives like your extracurriculars will be hugely important. That we're looking for well-rounded students with incredible, you know, with fascinating extracurricular profiles who can afford to have their child spend a life taking fencing lessons and going to work on uh, an animal sanctuary in Central in Central America. The wealthy, of course. I mean, one of the one of the, I am a sports dad, and I think one of the f most false narratives is that somehow um, athletics are athletics and the preference given to athletes in college admission uh, is a force for economic equity and diversity. It is exactly the opposite. To want to play, you know, if you take a sport, let's say soccer, that's the sport that my kids play. 
if you want to play at a collegiate level, you have to play at an elite club 10 or 11 months a year. And an elite club costs three to $4,000 a year minimum to be, it's a pay to play system. So when there are athletic preferences for kids who are elite athletes, you know, who can afford to send their kid to an elite club? Who can afford private training for their kids at, a, at 50 or $100 an hour? Wealthy families, right? The notion that somehow if we eliminate objective measures like the SATs and more rigorous grading, that somehow this incohate system of well-roundedness is going to be a vehicle for equity is maybe the greatest lie I can imagine. So, Jack, I also want to ask you about uh, a new project that is mentioned in Education Next in the in your byline. You say you're beginning a new book <clears throat> on uh, the science and uh, on science and research based literary literacy education. And the research based literacy uh, education reminds me of the science of reading that people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are you? Um, of the mind that this new this approach to reading is a new approach that that's scientifically uh, based is that one of the themes that you want to talk about in your new book? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I think that, you know it's really interesting. Daniel Willingham, the University of Virginia cognitive scientist, says that um, we live in an age of cognitive revolution, which is we you know we've learned more about how people learn in the last twenty five years than in the last twenty five hundred combined. But most of that uh, research. has not made it into classrooms. And, uh, you know, there's a a major disconnect between how reading in particular has been taught and what we know about how people learn to read. The sort of, you know, the the phrase science of reading tends to refer to what happens in early childhood reading, which is, you know, we have known for decades that systematic synthetic phonics phonics are the key to to language acquisition and learning to read. And, you know, Emily Hanford's podcast, Sold a Story, has really, has has changed the game on that in this country. And uh, school systems are shifting to systematic synthetic phonics. State legislators are passing laws about, you know, what counts as literacy instruction. And I think that that is potentially an immensely beneficial move. But there's also, you know, once students have acquired their ability to code language in, let's say, second grade. From third grade to college, there is actually quite a bit of science about how people learn to read and how people learn to read better that is similarly ignored. Uh, The profound importance of background knowledge, for example, the profound importance of fluency. Uh, And if you look at what happens in American classrooms, it's profoundly disconnected from what the science says we we should be doing. So, yeah. So what do you mean by by Fluency. Do you mean your the ability yeah. to use words in your speech, or is that so that reading out loud and yeah. and communicating with others using a sophisticated language is that what you're meaning by you need to really provide explicit instruction in that skill? Fluency. I think so. Fluency is the ability to read text at the speed of sight, and it involves uh, accuracy, which is I read the words. I you know I read the words correctly automaticity, which is I can do it at speed, right? As soon as I have to slow down and figure out the words as I'm reading them, my working memory is engaged in just figuring out what's in front of me and my work and, you know, working memory is incredibly scarce. Uh, And then my working memory cannot be allocated to comprehension, analysis, insight. Uh, By the way, the third part of fluency is prosody, which is the ability to um, infuse written language with the sound of what it would what it would sound like if it was spoken. So the ability to read at the speed of sight, to read 
automatically uh, and accurately is actually a huge driver of your ability to understand what you read. And data suggests that something like 40% of students are probably disfluent on some level, even into middle school and into high school. And so if you can't read at the speed of sight, if you're just trying to figure out what the words say, if you're trying to organize the syntax in your mind, you can't be thinking about what the author means and, uh, you know, uh, and making inferences about the text. And uh, so, you know, I think this is dramatically overlooked. We assume that, you know, uh, that students are fluent readers and many of them are not, particularly with more challenging, you know, like uh, the type of text that you would need to read as a 10th grader, you know, to be able to read Lord of the Flies fluently or uh, a scientific abstract fluently it takes uh, quite a bit of, of uh, quite a bit of skill. And I think that's just one drastically overlooked aspect of reading. Uh, one, of, one of my colleagues looked at the data with me. I was sharing her, with her the data on fluency and she has a middle school student and she said, I just realized like, I haven't read aloud with my son in years. I have no idea not only does the school have no idea whether he can read fluently, but I have no idea whether he can read fluently because we just stopped doing that in around third or fourth grade. So that's one small piece of like, I think the science is really clear that fluency is a prerequisite to higher order thinking about any text. So how do you teach fluency, Doug? I mean, I couldn't yeah. agree more with what you're saying. And I was been, I've been reflecting that some texts I can read very fluently and other texts <laughs> If it's in a subject that I really have no comprehension of, I, I have to go very, very slowly. So yeah. I, I understand that completely. But how do you teach that other than just expanding people's knowledge of uh, various domains? Yeah, I, th I think it does require, you know, uh, repeated oral reading. <laughs> uh, uh, so one of the models that we'll describe in the book is, first of all, I think I need a model for what fluent reading sounds like. And so it's actually really important to have the teacher read aloud to me, even the high school. Uh, you know, when my kids were in high school, one of the things that I would do would be, I would, you know, they both wanted to go into the sciences. So I, uh, I would read aloud to them, you know, try to like once a month, take a scientific article or something science-y from, you know, the, the, from a publication and read it aloud to them so they could hear what it sounds like. When, when someone, breathes life into the text, right? So that's the first step is I need to hear lots of oral reading. Uh, and by the way, when I hear someone read aloud a text that is more advanced than I can read comfortably on my own, I am also inferring or, or getting comfortable with more sophisticated forms of syntax that I'm not familiar with and more sophisticated forms of vocabulary that I can read on my own. So that then when I start to read on my own, I'm more likely to be to recognize those and be familiar with them. Second step is for students to read aloud consistently, to practice reading aloud. The way you get good at it is by doing it quite a bit. And I think the interesting thing is how many classrooms the text is no longer in the center of the classroom. I mean, I think one of the narratives, maybe particularly in upper elementary grades, is that, you know, the rates of kids that, the rates of, of reading among students is dropping dramatically. Like the, the book is losing a death struggle against the smartphone across society, and we have simply not um, reckoned with this force sufficiently. Kids don't read uh, enough out of school. And so one of the sort of responses that some educators take is, well, the way to motivate kids to read is to let them choose, let them choose their books and they will be motivated. Um, first of all, I'm not sure that that's 
true, like uh, someone who's read three books in their lives, choosing the book that they think that they will love, um, you know, uh, one of the results of it is every kid is in the corner of the classroom reading their own book, which means that they never have a discussion with a teacher or another student about what they're reading. And they almost never read aloud. And so I can't, I can't help them to understand what it means to read fluently and practice reading fluently. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of power in here's a book and we're going to spend instead of spending 25 minutes talking about what the main idea is and what it means to find the main idea of a passage. By the way, there's no data to support that this is effective as a, as a tool for reading development. Much better to actually read the passage aloud, to read something aloud together for 10 or 15 minutes, asking students to read short pieces. I read some of it to model reading, then maybe I release them to read a little bit on their own for the last five minutes, and then we discuss it. And talk well, as about I'm it. listening to you, Doug, I, a thought occurs to my mind that this could possibly explain the strange finding that has emerged from the PISA tests that have just uh, been reported, <clears throat> where the United States students at age 15 their reading scores are going up, whereas mm -hmm. reading scores in other industrialized countries on average are going down. Yeah. And it's quite a, a decided difference. Yeah. So I'm saying to myself, how could that be? And if it is the case that students in the United States are being exposed to more and more uh, conversations, either mm -hmm. maybe on their cell phones, maybe uh, yeah, I don't know exactly uh, on the internet in one way or another, all these things that we think are terrible things that are interfering with the learning, maybe they're actually not learning in school, but they're learning in these other ways. And it's actually uh, facilitating their reading. Is that a possibility? Yeah. It's certainly a possibility. I'm a little bit, I'm honestly a little bit skeptical of that. Um, I think there's pretty clear research that first of all, reading in hard copy, reading, reading, uh, paper-based reading, people remember more and they develop their ability to focus their attention better when they read off screen and on screen. But I do think your, your point about the PISA scores is really interesting, right? Like we, our PISA scores went down precipitously in science and math and they either went up slightly or treaded water depending on how you look at them in, uh, in reading. But I, I do think that, I think that this year's PISA scores are cause for concern globally, not just in the US, but also, you know, I think one of the major factors that we have to consider there is, is the role of the pandemic disruption. We are the wealthiest country in the world. As much as the, as much as um, Zoom school was a disaster, uh, it is a step up from no school and the ability to deliver teaching and learning remotely during the pandemic correlates to, um, Technological technological infrastructure, which correlates to you know economic economic wealth. So, if we're comparing our our school system to the other OECD nations, the Philippines and Mexico, you know, was uh, was school was remote delivery of school during the pandemic months much harder in those countries. I certainly think that that's a confounding factor that we should look at uh, when when we when we think about PISA data that we're probably getting a little bit of a bounce just because of our technology infrastructure as much as I hope one of our takeaways from the pandemic is never again should we believe that remote instruction, you know, remote instruction via a laptop can replace the classroom for the great majority of students. We certainly were better able to deliver that B minus proxy than many, many other countries in the world.
Well, thank you very much, Doug. This, this is uh, an illuminating discussion that is telling us a lot about where our educational system is today and, and where we need to take it as, as we go forward. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's my, been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I have been speaking with Doug Lamont, but he's a author of a book, Teach uh, Like a Champion, that's been a bestseller. And he's also the author of a just released Education Next essay entitled Your Neighborhood School is a National Security Risk. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.